0: University. University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network in Environmental Studies, a channel on the New Books Network podcast. I'm Matt Brown, a host of the channel, and I'm currently an MA candidate at the University of Wyoming studying cultural history focused on environment and science. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Renee Hansen about her new book, Watershed, attending to the to Body and Earth in Distress, published by University of Minnesota Press in 2021. Dr. Renee Hansen, welcome to the show. Hi, it's great to be here with you, Matt. Well, thank you for coming on. I'm excited to talk about your book. Um, but before we actually dive into um, into this insightful, powerful book, I wanted to um, ask if you could begin by telling us a bit by, about your uh, your background and your bio.
0: Sure. Oh, it's always interesting what what you have to pick when you decide to describe yourself. I was, I'm a Minnesotan, very much a Minnesotan, who's, who's going to transplant myself somehow in a month to Seattle because my kids all moved to the, both moved to the West Coast. But I'll always be a Minnesotan. I was born in Bemidji, which is Northwest Minnesota, grew up in Northeastern Minnesota and then taught for 40 years or something in the Twin Cities. I have been in Wyoming um, some and even stayed there about a week, but I haven't been there much. I um, grew up canoeing uh, in the Boundary Waters because as I look out right now, I'm back here at the lake and we're right at the start of the wilderness, the biggest wilderness area in continental U.S., I believe. Um, and, but we backpacked and... and Canoed because it was just what you do when you live on the water. We pretty much lived out of the woods when I was growing up in our garden. Um, and then I went out into the world and found out something about it. I thought everybody lived like this, kind of canning their own corn for the winter. Um, and I'm 71, so like it was a long time ago for most of you. But I thought it was just normal to live in the woods, and then I found out that isn't how the rest of the world lived, even then. That was kind of a shock to me. I did go into academic life and get my doctorate and teach at Minneapolis College for most of my career, taught at a number of other places too, but that was a great place because, like the woods, it was very diverse. When I'm up here in the woods, there are lots of of beings, different kinds of beings to be with. Then when I was in the, I don't know, academic world, it seemed like there was only a few kinds of beings. But at Minneapolis College, we had a great variety of people, not so many other beings. But um, a lot of climate refugees, a lot of native-born uh, diverse groups. This is a very diverse college. And I was at home there. Um, but I became increasingly concerned about climate change because of because of the stories from my students and because of what I was watching happen to my north woods here. We're at the very center of the continent, and you probably know that heats up quicker than the edges. And it has been doing that, heating up. We've been losing winter. Um, so I was disturbed about climate change. Then at 64, I suddenly lost my beta cells and became type 1 diabetic. A great surprise to me. Didn't know you could do that when you were old, but I did. And I'm now a diabetic on an insulin pump and had to learn all about diabetes and carbohydrates. I didn't know what carbohydrates were, but I gradually realized they were rather like carbon. And when I got sick, I was way over the top with carbohydrates, just like the earth is over the top with CO2. So I began to make the connections between what happened to my body and what was happening to the earth. And that actually gave me a way into talking and working on ecological issues. Um, Matt, does that somewhat describe who I am?
1: (laughs) I mean, it, it hits all of the points in your book, I think. And, and it, I mean, we we've only known each other for about I would say, you know, ten minutes or so. But uh, like <laughs> I, it sounds good to me. Thank you so much for that. Um, sure. And I mean, just kind of moving on onto the book. Um, it's written in such a creative way with um, with little meditations interspersed throughout. Um, the chapters are are super unique um, in terms of like their titles and then also the way that you, you narrate them. Um, and, and even you, you, you compose them. Um, but I like, before we really get into that, like, could you tell me just like where you got the idea to, to write it or what, what was the motivation to write it? Um, and I don't know, just, just something along that lines.
0: Yeah. Um, I wrote earlier in my career, and then I was a single mother, and I was teaching at a community college, which means you're working all the time. And also, my students' voices, I realized, were more, they seemed to me to be much more important than mine as a white Minnesota woman who, you know, people hear from us. But you don't hear so much from a new Somali immigrant or from um, someone who just managed to get here from Mexico or El Salvador or Tibet or wherever, my students came from all over, a lot of refugees from places like Florida and Alaska and Chicago, too, refugees from many different reasons. I was teaching writing and global studies and what was at the time called ecofeminism. And my students' voices seemed like worth laying my life on the line for. So I was really working hard on getting them out into the world and established so they could write. Gradually, some students started coming to me saying, tell our stories. You've got some privilege we don't have, privilege of audience. And I realized I do, I did have some privilege of audience that would take them a long time to get. And that the stories that they were giving me were uh, so incredibly precious everybody should be able to read all this stuff that I got to read from my students. Um, So that was one major motivation for writing. Another one is that I'm a member of many diverse groups. I'm, I'm, as I've already said, really a Minnesotan and my family group is um, a lovely kind of like clan of fundamentalist Christians. It's sort of, Weird, I mean, fringy, interesting. Um, My city, people are really diverse of diverse religions, diverse colors, diverse all kinds of things. And that's become the community I'm most at home in. My hometown is a mining town in the middle of an area where a lot of people are um, wilderness outfitters and the like. But my town, they're miners. And these groups don't know each other and don't talk to each other and are pretty much afraid of and tend to stereotype one another. Um, my, my climate refugee students from Somalia, for example, know almost nothing about the water in Minnesota. It seems like there's plenty of it to them, so there's no problems. And then they gradually learn that there are actually water problems here, too, and they need to pay attention because this is their new home. But they don't know the trees here. They don't understand why winter is important. It felt like a lot of people learned, needed to learn about a lot of other people, not only the humans, but the trees and the four-leggeds. And I wanted a gentle way of introducing them to each other. Um and then the diabetes came kind of as a gift to give me, I think, a way in of talking about that community, because I had suddenly lost one of my internal communities. If you've got working beta cells, folks, thank them now again. You probably don't ever think about them, but they are amazing. What they can do is to notice what you eat and give you the right amount of insulin at the right moment. I tell you it's really hard to figure it out once they croak on you so we are each a community of varied beings and we got to work together to keep that body functioning and then that's very like the community we are here in the outside of the personal body world um so I wanted to write about that. And I also am a cross-disciplinary person. I never fit very well into one academic discipline, partly because I think we have to keep crossing borders. So the book does that. It's not exactly memoir. It's maybe water. It's a memoir of Minnesota watersheds. It's storytelling, and it is meditation sometimes. Um and it once I freed myself from thinking it had to be one thing or the other, it really got easier to write. I think that's enough answer for now.
1: I like that's so powerful. And I mean, the the fact that all of all of the things that you went through with your with with the diabetes, at, uh, I, a lot of that is at, at the end of the book. And to be able to turn around and say that that's a gift is is something that I don't know if I have the strength to do. But it's 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 really it's it's really amazing that you're able to do that and then tie it into these these greater narratives and your and your greater um your greater experiences and um I I, I kind of would like to start in your childhood though um and just kind of like I guess ask you a two part question one um at the very beginning you do uh, make a land acknowledgement to to the indigenous people that that um you whose land you have you either grew up on or you taught so i wanted to open the door and and ask you to talk a little bit about that and then and then also um i wanted to ask you just in in especially the first couple of chapters as you're growing up you really foreshadow climate change um but you don't necessarily as you said you you weren't necessarily aware of it so i just kind of wanted to to like maybe ask you about about that and and then that that transition into learning more about it as, as you get, as you got older and maybe saw the world more.
0: Yeah. Thank you for noting the original people here. Um, I've noted that our Dakota went to Wyoming. So you've inherited some of the wisdom of that the people brought from here. This was, well, I wasn't taught that there had been Native people here before as I was growing up. It, it wasn't something they taught us in school. Even though I was born and grew up, was in my early life, very much near um, Ojibwa towns. I fished in Red Lake Reservation. And there were Native people around. But it was was like a hidden, open secret. And I hope that on reading the book, maybe it would take a second reading, you begin to notice how, oh, there were Nate, there were the Ojibwe people, Anishinaabeg people there. And I saw them, and I kind of noticed, but it was kind of hushed. So I am currently on Ojibwe land. This is ceded territory of the Ojibwe where I am on Birch Lake that flows into the Kauishwa River. The college I taught on is Dakota land, which was never ceded and is never paid for, Um, down by the confluence of the Minnesota and Mississippi River. Um, And I have learned much from this land and the people who cared for it and are caring for it. Um, And with them, I have learned much. I, I found that What I had learned from the woods and waters and other beings of the woods themselves was very like what the uh, Anishinaabe people in particular, first I heard from Winona LaDuke, were saying. And I realized that they had to be right because that's what the woods told me too. So that is a very strong thread, I hope, through the book. And I hope it encourages everybody to go out onto their land and learn from the land. Um, We all come from people who were indigenous to this earth, and we are indigenous to it. And we can learn from those who were indigenous on our own lands, and we can learn to become Native uh, if we let ourselves grow into the land. And that's what the Native people I know have asked us settler descendants also to do. We got to take care of the, of our home together. And then there was a second part of the question.
1: Yeah. I And, and, and kind of what you said really uh, highlights a, a quote from chapter two that I pulled out um, where you, uh, where, where you, you wrote um, from the distance of Ohio and graduate school, I saw my earlier life as a natural history museum tableau we had been living the past we had been part of nature we were expected like that Indian man at the Mississippi headwaters to fade politely away and so my, my kind of, my question was just based off of your own experience in terms of really getting be being you know uh, living on the water as you as as you like to say and, and living in the woods and and see but like also um, there's a part in the in the early or in the in I think chapter one where where your dad tells you um trees clean the air, they take the bad stuff out and put the oxygen in, but then you question where do the the trees put the bad stuff. Um so you do a really good job foreshadowing kind of your your glimpses into kind of climate change and, and pollution. Um, but then I you really you really grow out of it. So I was I was wondering or or you really grow into seeing the world in a different light. And I was just wondering if you could reflect on that experience.
0: Yes, um, I wonder if if many children don't have similar experiences of wondering why we're hurting the trees, for example. Don't they matter? Um, in the book, it, it was when my dad told me not to stand by the gas Tank as he was putting gas into the car because at that time it was leaded, and right. <laughs> I like the smell of lead. I, children do, you know. This is why they get lead poisoning. Dad firmly told me to get in the car, and then I, he told me it was poison and would kill my brain. And and so I wanted to know why he was using poison in the car. I, he said that the trees would take care of it, and that seemed like a real burden on the trees to me. So I remembered that I was. I don't know, six, probably. Um, and, and it seems like a big part of me thought, well, we should stop then. We shouldn't do that because, well, they're, they're my friends. They're the trees. And I think we, uh, children often feel that way often about um, animals that they eat. We ate animals and we knew them as our friends. And that felt like the right way. I mean, it was hard to kill that. Well, I killed the chickens. And that was hard, because they were nice chickens. But they had good lives, and then we ate them. And then I was responsible to do something decent with their bodies once they were part of me. Um, I wonder how much many, many people even who are very civilized, as children think about these things, and whether we could nurture that more so that we kind of stop the harm. I was lucky in that my parents were early readers of Silent Spring and Gaylord Hauser, and they became health food fanatics, it was called, and didn't want poison spray on their food. So I did get um, kind of an early start into noticing the problems that chemical pollution could could cause. Um, But I went, yeah but we've gone so much further into that, into that world. And now we all are here and have to figure out how to untangle ourselves partially by recognizing that we are part of those trees. Um, Matt, did it make you think of anything you wondered as a child?
1: I, it, it's interesting because I, I grew up in the mountains. Um, uh, but you know, I grew up outside of the mountains. I grew up in like a, a, a Valley community, you know, it, it's mm-hmm. Laramie, Wyoming. Um, and so it's like, I I don't necessarily feel as if I grew up like in the, in the, in the wilderness or in the woods, I, I grew up alongside them and ah. I just, I never had those same types of sensibilities in terms of like really treating nature necessarily as, as an equal, um, mm-hmm or, or, or things like that. It's not that what but, but I mean, at the same time, like we never, we never really did hunt. We only, we, we did fish. Um, mm-hmm. but, um, it, the, and, and there were questions that came up, you know, when we caught the fish, but it was never anything that was like super, super long lasting or, or anything like that. And it's only recently that I've really begun to look at the world and in, in a different, in a different light. Um,
0: but I think those beginning things can help inform how you look at it now.
1: Certainly, certainly, and I, I think the other big difference I was thinking that, about this when I was reading is that we also grew up where where land was, you know, public and it was, you know, state-owned land or federal land. Mm-hmm. Um, there wasn't a, there. There were fences everywhere, and and in your your book, you you state, you know, how you would just there wasn't even a concern about going up to into Canada, right?
0: Right. Yeah. Not at the first because we would just canoe anywhere or walk anywhere. It wasn't really true. Like I realize now that if I had walked in some directions, I would have gotten into mining land and that was
1: very private. Certainly.
0: Um, But I didn't have that sense because I could walk and canoe as far as I could get and there wasn't anything to stop me. Um, which was, yeah, unusual. And then as I grew older, first the Boundary Waters became an official wilderness and then you had to get permits to go into it. People up here fought that because they liked just being able to go into it. But now mostly they're, well, I don't know. Many people here are now in favor of it being a protected wilderness. But it was weird because they wanted it just to be their backyard. And gradually, we could no longer go into the woods to cut trees for our own fire, which also meant we couldn't clean up the woods. And that's a problem. Uh, We just had a huge fire, uh, the Greenwood fire really close to our place here. And it's largely because there's too much deadwood standing. No, not largely, largely because of climate change and we've had a horrible drought. But if we could be going out there taking out the deadwood the fires wouldn't be as likely. Um, So I've watched restrictions come in to what we could do here, much as the original way back in England at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution when the Enclosure Acts came and um, the poor people started starving because they could no longer hunt rabbits on closed land. So this issue of what is public land, what do we share, and um what is owned is important and then it's becoming really important related to water.
1: Yeah, yeah certainly and and, and before we really get into kind of kind of that the the water and spe- and, and, and specifically, I, I kind of want to take a step back also and, and think about the the political ecology or the the political economics of it all that you express, especially when you start, taking us into the stories of your students where um, they would you know you, you talk about Somalia and how they they experienced the drought and then they chopped down the trees to to make charcoal that they could sell in Mogadishu but in doing that they were well aware that it would only hurt the land further yeah. um, and and it seemed to that that kind of process seems to happen in um, in a few different places as well as, other other nations coming in to um to use the land for for different means. Um and, and and it kind of just raised like a question for me about like going off of that public land issue, like what is um like how do we how do we parse the individual from the communal and then build in the earth and the environment and ecology in this in this conversation as another know their body.
0: hmm uh, Yeah. And how do we change our consciousness so that we realize that it's really all one thing? I I encouraged my students and I encourage the readers to get to know a tree, for example, because I think you think that's a small thing, but if you spend time over a long period of time consistently with one tree, amazing things happen. I'm, and I can't tell you what, because it'll be whatever you and your tree learn together. That sounds mystical, but it's actually just sort of real. Um, we, it's, it's all one thing. You mentioned the Somalia crisis, which I had always heard as tribal warfare. And I just thought, wow, oh, those people in Somalia can't get along with each other. So well, I guess they deserve a war. That sounds bad, but that, those were thoughts inside me. The elders who I met made clear that the, the tribal war began because there was a huge drought and there wasn't enough fodder for the various herds. So they all converged on the same little piece of grass and, and they were starving. And as the elders said, we're not proud of the fact, but we fought and asked us, what would you do? if your children were starving? And I really think that's an important question to ask ahead of time. Um, it's not far from tribal warfare here. In my little part of the world, when when resources get scarce and there's not enough fodder or not enough water to go around, how are we going to deal with that? Because we are really all one water. I mean, it's in us and it's outside of us and it's, it's got a limit. So what do we do about that? Ma- Matthew, I want to take an extreme jump and go back to something else. You talked about my diabetes.
1: Yes, please.
0: I wanted to know if you ever laughed because I think parts of that are really funny.
1: Did of ever seem funny to you? Oh gosh. Um, I don't, I don't remember like, like bursting out into laughter. I'm um, just chuckle. Yeah. Like maybe, maybe, I don't remember. Um, it's <laughs> that's, that's it's okay. <laughs> but, um like I I mean so much of it was just it's uh I it was so powerful and, and almost overwhelming that uh that I just I don't know if I was in the right frame of mind to to necessarily take it in a I in like yeah. a lighthearted way. Might
0: take- I think it might take another diabetic who's on an insulin pump to <laughs> laugh about it. because, But part of my point is that once you become technologically dependent, it's really tricky. So you're up in the middle of the night talking to the helpline, and they're not very helpful sometimes. <laughs> well, the same thing is true of of our water once we mess it up. You know, we have to then figure out how to clean it. And that's a technological and chemical problem, just like my body is now. And it's really tricky. And we need the helplines, but we we got to learn how to do it. So like I had to learn how to manage my insulin pump 24-7, we got to do also with our water systems and now with our weather system. So that's the end of my little diversion there. No, no,
1: it's like to to complicate that even more though, like what you talk about when you were um, going house to house, just trying to ask people about their views on, on climate, you, you ran into a a Navy veteran who, who didn't believe in climate change, but knew the currents were changing. And that Mm -hmm. was, that was a problem and that needed to be dealt with. And, that's such I I don't know. I don't know if you want to reflect on that particular case and we'll just even yeah. complicate that even more because it was obviously important enough to put it in your book, right? Well, yes, it was, it was, it was another one that's sort of funny, but. Um, I think I probably laughed at that one.
0: <laughs> okay. Yeah.
1: We were going
0: house to house asking people questions, which is so much better than going there asking them for money. We were trying, we need to talk to each other more and learn what various opinions are. And as a climate activist, as I was sort of um, in that role at that moment, I was working with Minnesota350.org and asking about climate change. This guy was so clear that there was no climate change, but then he was sure that the change in the ocean currents was a big problem because his buddies were sending him texts about it. I think you just heard this summer, if you're watching the news, that the Gulf Stream is the weakest it's ever been. And uh, my my dear friends in Norway, I don't know how that's well. It's going to affect them. It's going to affect us all if the Gulf Stream turns. He's right. It's a big issue, and we should be paying attention. Um, fortunately, his brother-in-law was in the garage with him, and after we left, his brother-in-law probably talked to him because his brother-in-law had said um, i I think differently than he did do I I know climate change is an issue we use different language in much of Minnesota we just talk about we mostly talk about extreme weather events but we mean the same thing
1: right and I that's that's the same here in the Rocky Mountains it's always the big snows or the big the big frosts or things like that. But I mean, I like one, one really interesting comparison, I think between your experiences with, with diabetes and then kind of looking at our, especially these big climatic changes are, are, are these little differences in, in numbers. So in chapter four, your dad was recording the temp and like religiously and, and noticed it was getting warmer, but still didn't really I, I, and, and that that story itself isn't isn't so much what I'm trying to take away I guess but it's it's more of like the measurement of the temperature and what that means and then later on you're you try to eat a, a avocado and you think there's like 20 grams of uh, 20 grams of uh, carbohydrates yeah, when there's only two and and those those measurements seem so benign until they're not right yeah I almost died <laughs> because <laughs> Yes, that was
0: that was a really bad typographical error in my diabetes instruction booklet.
1: Right, and and, and and to I guess make it clear, the the instruction booklet said it was twenty grams instead of two, which is which which it actually is,
0: right? Right, it, that that little bit of avocado, and that's what people think. Like one degree change in temperature doesn't. That that can't mean much, but it's actually one degree Celsius, which a lot of people in the U.S. don't don't understand that Celsius degrees are different than Fahrenheit degrees, and one degree is is a huge amount. And you understand that if something gets off in your body, um, a part of the body connection I'm trying to make also is that if if the external conditions are off, then the internal our bodies are an extension of that so we reflect what's going on out there and it it does affect us so if we want to make our bodies healthy we have to keep supporting the health of all that's around us
1: we're 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 part of it certainly and 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 just to to play off of that as well I mean you, as, as you learn to, to, I guess, cope, if that's the right word, or mm-hmm. learn to live with your diabetes, I mean, it, it seems like you, act, you become more acclimated to it and, and you learn how to read your body and, and the feelings that it's giving off or, or the, what, what you're feeling too. So, I mean, I wonder if that's a connection we could make to, to kind of understanding the environment as well.
0: That's, that's part of why I call it a gift. Because I, I think I'm doing a better job just hearing my body since it spoke so loudly at that point. almost died that day. Um, of course, there are several days I've almost died, and I guess we all collect those days. They are ones that teach us really important things. And, and this is a way that climate change is also kind of a gift. Because once we wake up to it, we really have to pay attention and switch our entire our entire mindset. I think most of us have been born into or educated into a mindset of individualism, like I'm a separate thing and I just need to take care of my separate thing and what happens around me doesn't really matter that much. I can ignore it. And also that... We get to use everything. Everything else is a resource for me. And um, that we can conquer most anything. And Those ideas kind of need to fall away when you realize that you are not a separate thing. You really are just part of a, of a whole mesh of things. And um, little changes make a big difference. And we can't. Um, adapt to or recover from the catastrophic trajectory we're on without paying pretty close attention and changing our vision so that we begin to see with soft eyes. Uh, I, I don't know if that image works. I learned to walk in the woods in a way that I learned later Native people often did, do by not focusing, but by using the edges of my eyes to walk in the woods at night in the dark, by using the edges instead of the center point. And that's kind of what we need to do to find our way out of our current situation is pay attention to all the edges and don't focus so sharply. I might not be right about that. I'm certainly not right in all cases, but I think it helps to practice that
1: well and it it certainly seems like it's a way of changing a perspective not in a way of you need to change this to make it to make it better or worse it's just to change it to to change it right and 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 i i this this really sticks out in a lot of the meditations that that you you go into and before we really get into the content of those i just kind of wanted to to ask you like where did you have the idea of putting the meditations into in throughout the chapters? And, um, and like, I don't, I guess like, where did you come up with that? And then how did you decide where each meditation should go? Is that like a very intentional process?
0: Well, first I'm a teacher and there's (laughs) nothing as bad in teaching as just lecturing all the time. Um, I'm a teacher who knows that I learned most of what I know from listening to my students and to everything else. So if I was going to write a book, I didn't want it to be one where I did all the talking. Now, that's hard <laughs> when you're writing a book because you have to write all the pages. But the <laughs> um, meditations are pauses where I hope the reader will participate in creating the the document. Um, I used to tell students that they really hadn't written a book read a book if they hadn't written all over it. You got to make it your own by writing in the margins, by engaging in a conversation with that person who's doing all the talking in the book. So that's part of it. Just some of them grew out of assignments that I'd give my students. Um, and then for where they came in the book, it's kind of a meditative process to decide. I wrote it in strands, so I wrote, and the strands I wrote in different places. So I wrote the parts about the watersheds in Minnesota up here at the lake where I am now. I'm looking out at that lake as I speak to you. Um, I think I took a week or two up here by myself, and then there were various other times when I wrote that. I wrote my student stories, which were in many ways the hardest. Painful, many of them. When I was on a writing retreat in California and I was in community, I felt like I was being held in a community. And I could write those there. I wrote the diabetes things in St. Paul, by close to my endocrinologist, where I would be safe (laughs) if I needed to get to the emergency room. And I probably wrote the meditative things on the on the train, going back and forth from campus. I think we write and are. We write different things and we are different beings depending upon our setting. So it's kind of important to pick the setting for what you want to write or express. Um, And then I wove them together. I had a great editor who said, you got all these different books here, now make them into one thing, braid them. So one Thanksgiving... Weekend, I cut them all up and laid them on the floor and I braided them. That was really fun. That was the funnest part, probably, of writing, was braiding and um, letting the different parts call to each other. And
1: I hope I hope they went
0: to places where they like being.
1: Yes, yes. And, and, and it was really beautiful the way that, that you did weave it together. Um, and And I can only imagine that part of the process after going through all of the all of the work of, of writing these different sections in these different places, um, made, or, uh, it would have been just so, so gratifying to, to be able to, to just put everything together. And it feels like it flows together. So, so very well. Um, and to, to kind of get into the, 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 the content of the meditations, um, I, I think the, the most powerful one for me was was just talking about how to die and and really mm. kind of submitting to to different situations and how different people react to 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 different scenarios and different levels of pain and and trauma and and difficulty. I don't know. I don't know. I, I would like to hear your perspective on on that. It's.
0: It's an important one, I think. Um, early in the book, I talk about when this guy came into my classroom with a gun to wanting to shoot one of my students. And everybody in the class thought that they were likely to die. It was a, one of those early gun incidents in an academic setting. And uh, nobody died. So I'm giving away something from the drama of the story by telling you that, but not that day. Um, The students who had the most difficulty were the ones who had never thought that they would ever be in a situation like that. The ones who did the best were the ones who had considered that something like that might happen. Um, And that seemed really significant to me, that the the people who managed best were the ones who actually could think of it and face it. Um, Then there was a point in my diabetes diagnosis when I thought I might actually have pancreatic cancer instead and that I would probably not live long. Actually facing that was really helpful to me too because I do know that if there's, I don't know, if I get caught in a fire up here and, and I don't have insulin, um, I do now know how to eat to keep myself alive for several weeks maybe without insulin. But long term, it wouldn't work at all. So I'd have to figure out, like, how am I going to face this fact of dying? And it's been my experience that people do it maybe with less trauma if they've thought it through. And I think that we all need to think that through. My students whose family members are back in a position where they don't have enough food or it's way too hot and they don't have any way to cool themselves, um, do better if they have felt through the, the inevitability of death and considered how they want to meet it. I don't know that I'll meet it the way I want to when I do, but I have a little better chance of meeting it in that way or in some sensible, calm way, if I've considered it. This is a part of my ongoing work. Something else I know you were going to ask me about. Um, My lake is, that I'm looking out at, underneath it is... um, the ores, copper nickel ore, which is very rare on earth. They're very rare metals. And we have the one of the richest loads of this right here under the lake and leading into the boundary waters wilderness. There's a lot of political activity to prevent copper nickel mining from happening right under this lake or in areas very close to the boundary waters where the waters flow in. The argument is that actually they're going to flow into the Mississippi, not into the boundary waters, but it's like, a very narrow line, a few inches between those two watersheds. Um, And in many places, like in my hometown, they overlap the, the two watersheds. That is a very important political issue. But what many people ignore is the fact that we already have waters with high sulfate concentration. Because when you do taconite mining, taconite is low-grade iron ore. My hometown, Babbitt, is a taconite mining town. When you do taconite mining, you are crushing the rocks that have sulfate ores mixed into them. And then as water leaches through that, particularly after the mines are closed, it creates mine pit lakes with very high sulfur content, sulfate content. Wild rice can't grow in waters with more than, I believe this is what they've decided, 10 parts per million. And we've got water with more than a thousand parts that leaches out into areas that used to be wild rice beds. Um, sulfate waters are not really good for anybody. They cause diarrhea in humans. I think they probably do in moose as well. haven't spoken to any moose about that, but I expect so. It's not a great thing. And they, half of our lakes have high sulfate content already here in this part of Minnesota. That is not getting the kind of attention it needs. Um, We need to we need to fix that, and people are working on ways of actually using biological and um, natural methods to take the sulfate out of the water, so that wild rice can grow again. Wild rice is central to the um, of central importance to the Anishinaabe people here. It's holy. It's it is its own being, and the water also is. We need to protect the water and um, focus on the complexity of the issue. It isn't as simple as not letting something happen. That's important. But also noticing what we've already got to deal with is important. I think that's um, what I want to say about that. And I, um, I was at a meeting this morning talking about that issue, how we can bring together the many sides of people in this area and in all the watersheds. I actually don't like so much the state boundaries. I want us to talk more about the watershed boundaries. So I was looking and seeing that in Wyoming, I guess you have six watersheds. I think they all flow into the Missouri and the Yellowstone and then into the Mississippi. I think uh, yes. And
1: a- then there's some that goes into the snake as well. That goes into the Colombian, I think. It goes where as well? You might have to type that so I can um, Into the Columbian River. Okay, the um, Columbia.
0: Oh, yeah. So that would go west.
1: Right. And then we do have uh, the Green River uh, goes into the Colorado River.
0: Okay. So you've got three directions as well. Yes. That is really important and exciting because when we've got the water, all of ours in Minnesota comes from the sky. And then it goes in three different directions. We're really responsible. We are water, water keepers, um, and responsible. We get it pretty nicely from the rain, and how we send it on is very important. And it's really exciting to me to realize that you've got that same situation.
1: <laughs> yeah, it, and it's. It, it, you're right. It's it's a it's a real responsibility, and it and it does take. More than just one individual to, to really be able to cultivate um the the uh the kind of solution to these these problems that that are already here and, and it just it really does ring, especially after our, our, our conversation, but even just in reading the book, it really does ring true that you can't just like a, a, a disease like diabetes, you just can't ignore it. No. Um or, right. or else, you know, it's it's gonna it just gets worse, right?
0: Yeah. Something that a lot of the indigenous people are doing and then inviting the rest of us to do too, is become water walkers to walk the extent, see where the water falls outside your house. And then if you, if you can walk it all the way to the ocean, because it all goes there and we are responsible for the health of the ocean. And to really learn the path of that water is quite powerful.
1: Yeah. That, 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 that is i don't know that's yeah that's truly really beautiful in itself um and and i think probably a good place to leave off but um because we have taken up a lot of your time but before we go um you you have kind of hinted at it but i would i'd would like to just follow up and and ask our traditional final question about like what are you working on now
0: yeah well i am working on establishing my home base here up in this watershed and leaving the city i'm becoming a outstate Minnesotan again. I am also becoming a resident of Seattle. So your Columbia, send it on nicely <laughs> to my kids and my family out there. And um, I'm working on these political and cultural divides, trying to find ways of talking among the various groups, and helping people learn to become really grounded in the areas where they live. I do a lot of that on my webpage. I have a nice cartoon there about the connection between diabetes and climate that you could look at. I I didn't have um, pictures put into the book, so it's on the webpage instead. And then wanting to encourage people like you, Matthew, to continue in the work you're doing because it's going to take us all to um, um, go around to a world that's becoming healthier instead of becoming sicker. But we can make that switch.
1: I sure hope so. And and before we go, what uh, where where will people find you? What what is the what is your website?
0: My website is renehanson.com. So it's R A N A E. Hanson is H-A-N-S-O-N
1: dot com. Perfect. Well, everybody should should go out and check out not only Watershed, but but your 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 uh, website as well. Um, Thank you so much for for doing this interview. This has been such a such an honor. Um, And um, yeah, uh, thank you again. And an honor for me. Thank you very much.